if you have your Bibles, go to Colossians chapter one. Uh, and I want to give you a little bit of a uh, we just read this and we'll read it again. But I, I want to give you just a little bit of context of where we're at. Uh, if you haven't been with us here at North Place over the last several weeks or uh, you just, just need a refresher, uh, we've been talking through a series called It Starts at Home. The idea that the gospel doesn't just start in the four walls of the church, but the primary facility and the primary facilitators of the message of the kingdom are parents and it happens in the home. So the first week we, we talked through that identity and that idea. And Pastor Brian challenged us with the idea that incarnation always trumps just proclamation. That if we live it out in our homes, that our students, our children, our families will get it. We have to live out what the Lord is speaking to us. We've talked about intentional marriage as an intentional family that it's not just passion, but it's devotion, that Christ showed us devotion. We should do that in our marriages as well. And then last week we talked about the blessing, the, the tangible using your words to bless your children and, and the feedback that I've heard just from people about that message of what, they, what it's done in their hearts. Not just people who are parents, or, but we've had a, a few young single adults that don't have families, don't have kids that have begun to visit our church during this series. And they got to hear that message and their response was, I wish I had been blessed like that by my parents when I was growing up, it would have changed the trajectory of my life. So God is doing something by teaching us that it starts at home, this identity of family. Uh, The challenge with that is there is a, a very limited definition in most of our minds of family. And when series like these typically happen, there are people that get left out because they're not the husband, wife, 2.5 kids, which I don't know how you get a half a kid, but that's what they say, your white picket fence and your dog, uh, there are people that get left out, such as singles. So as I begin to, to take on the charge of preaching a message to and for those that are single, uh, I know there's a couple of cautions. Uh, you might check out. One, if you're married. Because you're past this, you're in a relationship, and so most of the time when you hear about being single, it is, let let me say it like this. If you go to the bookstore and go to the Christian bookstore, uh, there are rows and rows and rows and rows of books on how to better your marriage. And if you, if you equip yourself with these methods, if you learn these principles, if you begin to do these things, it will improve your marriage. There are very few books about being single and how to do that well. Because for the most part, I don't know that very many people want to. We often treat singleness like one of two things. Either it's purgatory and life is going to start soon after you get out of singleness and you're just waiting to get delivered. Or the flip side, it's a prison sentence and you may never get out. And so we usually treat that very, very negatively. So the flip side of it is you may be single and you may check out because this is awkward for you. I've been there. I've sat there and, and I never like to hear sermons about singleness when I was single because part of that it always made you feel like there is this thought process in people's mind that you're suddenly going to become more complete when you get married. And, and often it was well-intentioned. There, there are things that only happen in the context of marriage that, that make you feel more alive. But there are, I had somebody very well-intentioned say to me, you know what? Your ministry is going to take off once you get married. I was like, do I magically learn Hebrew when I, when I say I do? Like, is this Captain Planet? Do I put the ring on all of a sudden I get special? Let's our powers combine. Like, I'm, all of a sudden things change for me when I get married. You know, does God like me better? And once, he's like, hey, this girl likes you, so now I like you. You can be anointed. I don't know, but they, I know they meant well. I know they meant that, hey, there are going to be things that you can speak to out of experience once you get married. But there's two tragedies of that. That one, it makes it seem like I'm incomplete and less anointed. And two, you don't want my experience. You want the experience of the book. And that has nothing to do with the ring on my finger. So with that in mind, approaching this subject can be tough. 
and, and I want to be mindful of that. And if you are in this room and you are single, um, this is not one of those moments, hopefully, that makes you feel alienated, isolated, and misunderstood. Uh, the other thing I will say to you about preaching a message like this is that I don't want it to be a topical how-to where we run through some, a few scriptures that tell you great details of how to be single. We cheat ourselves if we divorce what God is, what God is saying in the total meta-narrative of scripture to just make a point through a topic. And so while we are talking about singleness, it's very tied to how the gospel works in our lives. And that will always be a constant theme that you'll hear here at, here at North Place Church. Colossians 1, 15, let's read it again. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him, all things were created and in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things and in him, all things hold together. He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And I know there's two thoughts right there. Good scripture. What does that have to do with being single? Let's tackle the, we'll we'll tackle the second one here in a second. But I think one of the things that we need to understand is that marital status, we may have too low a view of relationships. Uh, in our society, in our culture, because truly, if we have been saying what needs to be said here in this series, and we have, we've been saying that marriage is the picture of the love of Christ for the church. And there is an identity of relationships back in all throughout redemptive history that had made relationships much more valuable, maybe than what we make them today. If you read in the Bible and you look at redemptive history, let's look back at Genesis. Adam and Eve show up and they're they're walking with God and they're in relationship with one another. In fact, God gave Adam Eve because he said it's not good for man to be alone. There's this idea that though Adam was walking with God, the first problem that we see in scripture is loneliness and God remedies that. But Adam and Eve mess up. And so they have cursed mankind with sin and made it part of our DNA and made our hearts have this sin sick disease. And when God begins to unveil the plan of redemption, the first thing that he says is Genesis 315, that the seed of woman is what will bring redemption. And all of a sudden that changes everything about relationships, because then in a because procreation should only come in the God sanctioned context of marriage. That's the way that he designed it to be. This pressure to be married and to recreate, to procreate was very, very important to the identity of the people of God. So when you see Abraham show up in scripture, God says to him, I am going to make you, though you can't have a child on your own, I'm going to make you the father of many nations. Your offspring will spread the glory of my name all throughout the earth. And Abraham tells that to Isaac and Isaac tells that to Jacob and on and on. There's this idea that your offspring might be the, what redemption comes through. And think about that. In this day and age, there's pressure in dating. Um, you want to get married. Maybe your parents are like, look, you're a certain age. You need to give me grandkids by now. But think about that level of pressure. Like now it's just like, hey, I'm kind of interested in you. We should date because I want to hurry, hurry up and get married. Then it was, hey, girl. That's, that's my hey, girl. Hey, girl. <laughs> you do realize that the whole redemption of mankind rests on this. What you doing on Friday night? Like whole different type of pressure. So. Over and over again, as you see through scripture, there's this idea that having offspring is really, really, really important. 
So being in a relationship is really, really, really important. This idea of a kinsman redeemer comes from the idea that a woman could not have her husband die and become a widow, but somebody from his family as kin had to redeem her and make sure that she could continue to create offspring so that redemption could come. That idea keeps going further and further, and, and we see people categorize that if you are a man and you're not married, and wh- whether it is because you're a eunuch and you cannot reproduce or because you've decided that you wouldn't, that it's almost seen as, as a second-class citizen, or if you're a barren woman, that there's this idea that, that you're, there's a certain level of shame, or if you're a widow or a divorced woman, that they said in the law that you have to be remarried. And in saying that, the old covenant thought that the offspring and, and were going to be the hope, but the new covenant says that Jesus has brought the redemption and that he is the hope. So when we look at that in the Old Testament, it was bad to be single, but in the New Testament, God tells a different story. As you begin to read scripture, there are different instances when he begins to say, singleness is good. Let's look at one of those instances. First Corinthians chapter seven. Paul is writing to the Corinthian church, and, and if you don't know a little, the history of Corinthians, it, it's a little bit of a disjointed book because it starts out that he has heard about their sexual immorality and their divisiveness and their spiritual immaturity, and so he has to address those things early on. So in chapter 5 and chapter 6, Paul seems angry. It's one of those Sundays that you don't want to be at church because when that letter is being read, he's calling people out by name. But he gets into chapter seven, he starts answering questions. And he actually literally says, now concerning the matters about which you wrote. So it's like, now that I've taken you to the woodshed and given you a spanking like you need it, now that I've rebuked you, okay, I'm going to answer the questions that you sent me. And so he begins to talk to them about, this is how we do life, about marriage, about divorce, about worship, about orderly uh, corporate worship, about why not to be involved in pagan worship, about all of those things. And when you start reading in chapter seven, verse six, he says, now as a concession, not a command, I say this. I wish that all were as I am, as I myself am, single. But each has his own gift from God, one of one kind and one of another. Some have the gift of marriage, some have the gift of singleness. To the unmarried and the widows, I say that it is good for them to remain single as I am. But if they cannot exercise self-control, they should marry. For it is better to marry than to burn with passion. To the married, I give this charge, not I, but the Lord. The wife should not separate from her husband, but if she does, she should remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband. And the husband should not divorce his wife. And there is this idea that we don't necessarily have in our culture that marriage is good, but singleness is also good. In fact, in our culture, for those that are single, there's a either an over-desire for marriage or under-desire for marriage. The over-desire for marriage says that you're incomplete, that, you're, that your life is less than whole, that, you have, that there, there's something missing in you that if you don't get married. And the under-desire of marriage says this, that this thing doesn't work, that divorce is just as rampant in those that say that they're believers as those that are not, that I've seen in my generation, there's a lot in my generation that have seen one of the highest divorce rates, so my parents couldn't get this figured out. Why would I dare put myself in that, in that type of peril and trouble? I don't want to have any of this mess. I'm not playing this game. So there's this love for the idea or this hate for the idea, but there's never this thought that singleness is good. But what Paul says here is he says, I wish that you would stay that I am because there's a giftedness to this. Maybe a better way of saying that is that marriage is normative. The truth of the matter is that most of the people in this room are either married, will be married or want to be married. But there is a singleness that's exceptional. And I'm careful with what word I use because exceptional, I mean it in two ways. It is not the norm. Most people either don't want a a fully single life or may not have a single life. They may not be called to that. But it's also exceptional in that it is a high, high calling. 
That to be single, and maybe I need to add some purpose to what singleness is. If we say that marriage is is the devotion of Christ to the church, then maybe it'd be accurate to say that being single is the devotion of the church to its Christ. So with with that idea being carried, it is a high, high calling to say that I'm committing myself to say that the Lord is sufficient for me. So men and women who are single and make that statement, you are in a good class of exceptional people. There are great men and women who were single and they were fully capable of doing the work of God and fully man, fully woman. Let's just start with the superstar on our team, Jesus Christ. He was fully man and fully God, but he was also single. And there was nothing about him that was diminished because he wasn't in a marriage relationship. John the Baptist was single. That may have been because he ate wild locusts and honey and wore camel hair. But nonetheless, he was single. The Apostle Paul, one of the greatest theologians that have ever that has ever walked the face of the earth. Much of our theology was built out with the letters that he wrote to churches was committed to being single. He says it in the text that I wish you were single as I am because it gives me the ability to do what God is asking me to do. Those are good things. Let's have some contemporary models. There's an author, theologian, pastor, John Stott, 70 year old man who has committed himself all his life to be single. And he has done great things for the kingdom of God in not in spite of his singleness, but through his singleness. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, one of the greatest authors on community that we have ever seen, The Cost of Discipleship, talked about how we walk in life together, but he was committed to singleness. And maybe more than biblical heroes or theological heroes, maybe it's the men and women that are even under the roof of this building that are single moms, that are single dads, that are some of the greatest heroes of faith because they slug it out and fight it out day after day, but they show their kids the gospel of Jesus Christ by their faithfulness and their devotion. And I'm intentional in saying single moms and single dads, because when we say single parents, our minds often just go to single moms. But there are men that are under this roof that are fighting to be all the dad that they can be without having a spouse. And they are raising their kids and doing the best that they can. They are heroes of the faith in their singleness. The so Paul says marriage is good. Singleness is good and it's exceptional. And then he makes this strong statement that it is a gift of singleness. When I was a kid in Oklahoma, we had a deal called True Love Waits. I don't know that we, I don't know if we do it in North Texas, but in Oklahoma, it was a big deal. And a man named Paul Abner would come and he would do a service and he would, they would give purity rings. We would make commitments to stay pure. True Love Waits. And Paul Abner was not speaking from a good idea. He was speaking from how he was living life because he was a 40 year old man that was not married and had saved himself, had been pure all of that time. And we honored that when we were in the service. But when we were, when it was me and my boys, it was often, I don't want that gift. I don't want to be the dude that's 40 years old and still single. And, and we, we made it seem like that gift was this special satiety of your soul where you're like, I don't even mind that I'm not married. That's not what gift means. If you often see the word gift used by Paul, it is a measure that is used to build someone up. It's the same word as gifts of the spirit. And so when Paul says that your singleness is a gift, he's saying that your singleness has a purpose of building others. Your singleness shows the devotion of the church to its Christ. It shows that I need him, not just another person, that he's what makes me whole. And I'm fully devoted and committed to him. And maybe let me say it like this, because we may not understand commitment. We're good about passion. 
We do good with passion. So it is sports season. Uh, it's basketball season. I love basketball. And every time you see a Gatorade's commercial, it's all about passion. They're sweating green and orange and passion is oozing out of their veins with Gatorade. And passion is awesome. We love passion, but we don't often talk about commitment. Because passion says that you go after what's most, what's ultimate on your heart. So what passion tells me is I love my wife, but if I go to the store to go get some Pringles and that sniper named Cupid hits me with an arrow and I see somebody else, it's okay to leave her because passion drove me that direction. But commitment says that even if she doesn't serve what I want, I'm so committed to her that it's not about me, that it's about her. So there's a difference between passion and commitment and devotion and passion. And what he's calling us to is, can in our singleness, can we show the gift of building others up by saying he is sufficient for me and I am committed to him? So we've talked a lot about this idea of being called to singleness, but let's talk about it in terms of those that are single but want to be married. There's nothing wrong wrong with that. Singleness is good, but marriage is good also. Uh, My fear is that our culture has hijacked the meaning of marriage. Because marriage is a sanctifying process that shows us how Christ loves his church. That's why as a man, I have a mandate to love my wife the same way that Christ loved the church. And as women, we, you have the mandate to be in glad submission to your husband in the same way the church is in glad submission to its savior. That it, is, it is a symbiotic relationship that it works powerfully together. But in that being said, we, in our culture, it is about self-gratification. The change of status, sexual satisfaction, or whatever else we can make it about, security, financially, whatever else. And we have hijacked the meaning of what it was all supposed to be about. So when we approach this, we kind of approach it selfishly. Let's just talk about it because the dating has even changed. Dating didn't used to be dating. Back in the day, you just had an arranged marriage, which, you know, when I think about it, that's a lot of money that you save on a lot of dates. It's not a bad idea. So they had arranged marriages, but culture changed. And so they said, well, we're not going to do we're not going to do arranged marriages anymore. We're going to do courting or what what was actually called was calling, because the way that it worked was that a man had to get a permission, get permission from a woman to call on her. And when they went on a date, they didn't go to the movies or go to a restaurant. He sat in the house with her family and her parents. So you think it's awkward now when you go to pick her up and her dad's holding the gun. Think about having the whole meal that way. So. He he would show up and he would have to see her in the community of her family and she would have to see how he interacts with her family. And it wasn't happening in isolation. It was happening in community. Well, somehow it changed and then it became dating. So when it became dating, you picked her up and you took her out and you impressed her with how much money you could spend or, or how culturally relevant that you were. And now it's evolved into this idea of hooking up where, you know what, all that is way too much stress. Commitment is too much stress. So let's just hook up with somebody. Let's just, we don't want the relationship. We just want the benefits of the relationship. We'll hook up and when we, fight them, when we find the right one, we'll get it all worked out. So one of the things is because that's the, the temperature of our culture, those of us that, are, that have been single recently or those that are single have always approached it with this sexual satisfaction in mind. So we're adults. Let's do this. Let's talk about sex. Let's bring it up. First Thessalonians chapter four. Verse one, Paul's talking, he says this. Finally, then, brothers, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus that as you receive from us how you ought to walk and to please God, just as you are doing, you do so more and more. You know what instructions we gave you through the Lord Jesus, for this is the will of God, your sanctification. 
that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God, that no one transgress and wrong his brother in this manner, because the Lord is an avenger in these things, as we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you. For God has not called us for impurity, but in holiness. Therefore, whoever disregards this disregards not man, but God who gives his Holy Spirit to you. Uh, let me let me let me tell it like this. I grew up in a generation where in youth group, you're always told sex is bad. Sex is bad. Sex is bad. Sex is bad. Let's be honest. Sex is good. It's a gift from God. And oftentimes the way that it was presented in terms of purity was they would come at you with, with the analogy of an ice cream cone. So you've got this pure vanilla ice cream on an ice cream cone. And then you drop it in the dirt. And you'd ask the question, this ice cream, and in youth groups, it was a little bit more foul than that. It wasn't dirt. But you drop it in the dirt, do you still want to eat it? And it was always weird that one kid that was like, well, you know, like, there's dirt on that. You wouldn't eat that. Would you eat that? Like, just bad. So they would give you this idea that if anything affected that purity, that the whole thing was contaminated. And, and there's a part of it that is true. But I would like to carry the idea of this. Maybe it would be better said this way. If you've ever been in a foreign country and you've had, you know, a Coke, a soda, whatever, whatever you call it in a foreign country, um, it is amazing. There are tastes and flavors that are on another level. It is like you've ascended to the third heaven. You break into the hallelujah chorus after the first sip because it tastes different because they're using pure cane sugar. And pure cane sugar is just the best form of the sugar. It is pure. Well, here we get Coke. We get Sprite, we get all that stuff all the time and it tastes good, but it doesn't taste as good because it's got a sugar substitute. And so the sugar substitute is easier to reproduce and it's easier to attain. But if you wait for the better thing, it tastes so much better. And one of the things that Paul is challenging when he says don't be impure is if you wait for the better thing, it's so much better than the low hanging fruit that you're getting by taking the cheap substitute that the world has made. Only God can do the pure thing. So quit settling for the cheap synthetic. So for those of us that are in this room that are single, that are wanting to be in a relationship and marriage, hooking up is not the way to do it. That's the weak synthetic. And I understand that waiting for the pure thing is much, much harder. But when you get a taste of the pure thing, it is so much better. The other side of it is, let's talk about the idea of sexual idolatry, because in our, in our culture, we have idolized sex. That's why every ad, every billboard, every television commercial has the idea of sexuality in it. They might be trying to sell you bathroom soap, but they're going to use a bikini model because they want to idolize sex. And so it has become an idol. But if you think about idols, look at Acts 17. Paul is talking in the Areopagus and he's talking to them about you have worshiped gods that you have made. And you constantly have to go back and serve those gods over and over and over again. And he asked the, the loaded question, if it was your God, how come you have to keep feeding it? Why doesn't it take care of you? And oftentimes in our culture, that sexual idolatry plays out where we keep having to feed this thing so that well, that way we can get something out of it. So what happens with our ladies, sometimes our young ladies, unfortunately, even sometimes our older ladies, is they show up inappropriately dressed because they are craving the idol of attention and they keep trying to feed that idol. And so they have to keep taking off more and more to give that idol more and more because that idol is not serving them. They are having to feed it. Or the flip side with our men, we get caught up in pornography because we have to keep feeding that addiction and it is not taking care of you. Neither of those idols are ultimate. Jesus Christ is ultimate. And when you trust him, what makes him God is that he takes care of you. You don't have to make him propped up. So for those that are in this room that are pursuing marriage, 
Don't let this society hijack from you what it is all about. That idea of sexual gratification, that's a very selfish concept. It's a very American concept. Do you realize that in the grammar of the English language that we are the only language that capitalizes I as the first person singular? No other culture does that because we've become self-centered. And maybe that's the greater danger that we suffer, not just the sexual gratification, but the selfishness that often comes out of singleness. Because the identity of singleness is this is my thing. I do what I want with my money, with my time. And here's the thing. It doesn't just change because just like I didn't learn Hebrew when I put this ring on, I didn't learn to become unselfish when I put this ring on. And maybe we make better use of our time as singles if we learn to become selfless instead of selfish because we realize that it's not about us. If it points to the picture of our love for Christ, it's never been about us when we were single. So as we walk in this, one of the things that I might say is one of the dangers that singles run into is isolation. I remember as a single at the other church that I worked at, it was, I was the only single person on staff. And most of the staff members were old enough to be my parent. They had sons and daughters that were in high school with me. So staff events felt like I was sitting at the kitty table at Thanksgiving because there was not even a frame of reference. They had been married more than half of their lives and I didn't know anything about it. And I felt like I was trapped in this room by myself and nobody knew what I was feeling or what I was going through. And the reason that I say that is because I think sometimes we get really, really dangerous when we put people in isolation. Uh, There's a reason why when I became young adult pastor at North Place, it was fighting words when you called it a singles ministry. Because I think doing that puts it at them in a context. You remember the, the, the book Lord of the Flies? There was a bunch of little boys on an island that were left to rule themselves and figure it out and it ended up in destruction. I think sometimes we lead those that are single to themselves and say, oh, you guys can figure it out. We figured it out. And it ends up in destruction. Maybe the reason that it starts at home and it applies to people that are married in this room is one of the greatest things that you can do for the lives of those are single is being in it, is be a shining example of what a marital relationship under the banner of Christ looks like. Those that are seeking marriage, one of the best templates in this room for how to get it done is to watch the men and women of faith that have walked faithfully with him in marriage. So we've come full circle. What does this have to do with Colossians chapter one? Colossians chapter one is this conversation that Paul is having with the Colossian church who have somehow devalued Christ, whether external forces or or deviation from his teaching, but they have made him less than ultimate, thinking that they needed something else besides him. So Paul goes through lengthy terms to talk about how great, how ultimate and how all sufficient Christ is. And the reason that uh, that is important is because regardless of your marital status in your room, he's the all sufficient one. That if you find your identity in him, you are whole. I understand that Jerry Maguire told you that that guy completes you, ladies. They lied to you. Christ completes you. 
Men, I know that people have told you that you will be a better man or you'll be more full of a man or, or you'll, you can walk around with your chest puffed out when you get married. But what makes me throw my shoulders back, what makes me more full and more alive is that I am all sufficient in Christ. And the truth of the matter is it's the same thing with selfishness, that it doesn't change when you put the ring on. It doesn't change. Your sufficiency doesn't become your spouse when you get married. Your sufficiency always has been and always will be in him. It's what Paul says that he will always be the preeminent one. The fullness of the Godhead dwells in him. That all that you need, all that exists, all that's been created, all of that comes through Christ. And that's important. Because if you're single and you're in this place, he's your all-sufficient one. For the single mom that is fighting day after day because she made a commitment to raise her kids in the way of the Lord. And and she's had to do that by herself. You may feel like you're alone, but the all-sufficient one, Christ, stands with you. For the widow or the widower who was in a long, loving marriage, and now you feel like you're all by yourself and you're forgotten, the preeminent one who's reconciling all things to himself has not forgotten you. To the young man or the young woman that is walking through life feeling like everything in their culture is telling them that they have to go hook up and be in a relationship. And and, and let me tell you, my heart is broken in this. There is a, a frustration with me, with our kids, students, young adults, that there is this ungodly boy craziness or girl craziness. Let me, let me put it like this. I'm, I'm going to talk to you. Let me put you on blast. If your mom has to take you on a date, it's not a date. And that being said, let's remove some of this pressure that at 10 years old, you've got to be dating somebody. I understand that you can send text messages and write sweet notes, but you've been reading for like four years. You can't say anything that valuable. And that being said, we've got this crazy boy craziness and girl craziness that's happening in little kids. And so they're trying to find satisfaction in relationship and it's the law of diminishing returns. It's this idol that they have to keep feeding. And so it's not just passing notes or saying that we're boyfriend and girlfriend. It's holding hands. It's kissing. It's deeper kissing. And then it leads to sex so much earlier because we put this pressure that they're supposed to be sufficient in Christ. If this is called it starts at home, then maybe we need to start teaching from day one that what's going to make you sufficient is not a career. It's not going to be some skills. It's not an award or a plaque that you're going to get. It's not going to be a boyfriend or girlfriend on your arm. It's going to be Jesus Christ and Jesus alone. The fullness of the Godhead dwells in him. He's the all-sufficient one. So, if we could get a hold of that, that's not just for those that are married. That's for those that are single. That That is for those that are single and never want to be married. That are those for those that are single and they, they would love to be married. Him being the sufficient one says in me that if I were not to have been married a couple of weeks ago, if I were never to be married, that he's good to me. But it also says that when I said those vows under the banner of his name and his authority, it was proof that he's good to me. He's the all sufficient one. And if he's sufficient and you're in him, you can't be deficient. The other thing, and I mentioned this in the isolation, I, we talked about this concept of it starts at home. And men and women who are single often feel isolated because they're by themselves at home. Uh, there's not a community, a family of faith, a family around them. What if this became home? 
as a kid, when I go back to my parents' house, it's home. I am who I am. I do what I want. I say that. That sounds like I have free reign of the place. I don't do what I want, but I'm allowed to be me. If I want to have ice cream sandwiches for breakfast, I can do that. If I want to leave my socks on the ceiling fan, I can do that. It doesn't usually end well, but I can do that. And they welcome me back. They haven't taken back my key. I haven't lived there in years, but they haven't taken back my key because I'm always welcome. I'm always allowed to be who I am, whoever that is. I remember when I was a little kid, it constantly changed who I wanted to grow up to be. I wanted to be the president, and then I realized presidents get shot, and I didn't want to do that. I wanted to be, wanted to be an astronaut, and then I realized I was afraid of heights. I didn't want to do that. I wanted to be an NBA basketball player, realized that requires being able to be good at basketball, so I didn't end up doing that. Like, and all through it all, my mom was buying me books on being the president. My dad was taking me to, to a space museum to see, to see cool stuff. And, you know, my parents invested in making sure that I got dropped off at basketball practice. And every time that I changed who I was, they, they weren't like, Mm-mm, we want the basketball kid. You can't come in here. Because it was home and I was welcome here. What if this were home? For men and women that don't have a family at home. But they walk in this place and there are brothers and sisters that say, wherever you are, whatever you are, this is home. It starts here. So I'm going to ask the worship team to, to return to the stage. And they're going to begin to set an atmosphere. We, we sang a song during worship that says, your love came down and rescued me. Your love came down and set me free. And one of the greatest sermons I've ever heard on 1 Corinthians 13 actually wasn't even intended to be a sermon. It was just a thought during a staff meeting. And Pastor Brian said, if God is love, which we read in John, then everything you hear about 1 Corinthians 13 is a description of him. For those that are looking for love, love came down in the bodily form of Jesus Christ and rescued you. And love came down in the bodily form of Jesus Christ and set you free. And if you find your sufficiency in him, there is a freedom that cannot be found in anybody else. I stress to you that all that we are is reconciled to him. Our singleness, our marital status, our loneliness, our frustration, our brokenness, our confusionness, He has room for all of it. Will you bring it to him? He is the all-sufficient one. So I'm going to ask here in a moment our prayer team. I'm going to ask you to stand. and I'm going to ask our our prayer team to join us up here in the altars. And maybe you're here and you are single. Whether that is committed to that, called to that, whether that is That's where you are, but it's not where you want to end up. There's a place here for you to be reminded that he's the all-sufficient one. But I would dare say, if you're in this room and you're married, there's some of us that need to remember he's the all-sufficient one. My heart's broken as the young adult pastor of this church because I've had way too many conversations recently with couples that are getting a divorce because My husband doesn't give me the lifestyle that I want. Or my wife doesn't meet the needs that I have. Well, you've got it wrong. One, it's never meant to be about you. But two, that meeting those needs and that carrying your burdens 
rest on Christ, not the man or the woman that stood next to you. They never were promised to be all sufficient. Jesus was. So if you'll stand to your feet with me, I'm going to ask the prayer team to, team to join us here in the front. And I, and I don't know where you're at. I don't fake to know. I don't want to trivialize it by pretending that I know. But I do know that the all-sufficient one is here. And all of those things are reconciled to him. So maybe you need someone to pray with you. Maybe you need someone to just encourage you that you're walking this alone, but just to pray with you and remind you that he's the all-sufficient one. To remind you that love came down for you. That's available. Maybe you're here and you honestly need to pray and repent because you've been putting too much of a burden on on your spouse. Asking them to be only what Christ can be for you. And maybe not just prayer, but there needs to be a conversation, an apology to that spouse for putting too great a burden on them. I'm going to pray. I'm just going to give you the opportunity to respond. It's home. You're free to do what needs to be done here. You're welcome here. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, I thank you for the distinct privilege of being yours. We sang it earlier. I am yours, I am yours, I am yours, forever yours. And Lord, there's something powerful about that, that if our hearts could wrap around it, that those that are single wouldn't run from relationship to relationship, nor would they feel like they're devalued or second-class citizens because they're not married. Lord, in your word, even in the Old Testament, you begin to communicate to people because of the redemption that comes through your son that they are made whole. In in Isaiah 53, there's a conversation about the suffering Savior that though he was cut off from the land of the living, that his offspring, his eternal offspring, would make a name throughout the earth. That there was a conversation for the barren woman that though she was barren, that she would have a monument that was greater than just having sons or daughters. That for the foreigner and the eunuch, that though they seem they're far off and second class citizens, that they're brought into the family of God because of relationship with you. You made them whole. And as true as it was in the book of Isaiah, It's true for people in this room today. You're their all-sufficient one. The fullness of the Godhead dwells in you and you are reconciling all things to yourself. It's found in you. It's not this best case method that once they get through this, you're going to provide. You are the reward. They get you. Remind us of that today. Remind us today, we are yours. I thank you and I praise you for what you're doing in the hearts of men and women. Taking off the burden of being wrong because they're single. It's good and it's a gift. But Lord, I also thank you for reigniting in the hearts of those that are married that you're their sufficiency, not their spouse. Make these next few steps like they're just going home when they come to receive prayer and receive your love. Lord, it's in your name that I pray. If you're here and you need prayer, this is your opportunity to respond. Also, at our home place kiosk, there are home place pointers about being single, whether that's seeking marriage or whether you're called to be single. Take advantage of those practical websites and different books that you can utilize to help you in this journey as you walk. We love you, and as you pray, feel free to take as much time as you need. We'll see you next week.